Hey everyone, Misaligned is back this week and we have a special guest and before we dive in, I just want to let you all know that Misaligned is part of the Modern Vinyl family of podcasts and you can check all of the podcasts out over at modern-vinyl.com. You can check out other great podcasts like Missing Artwork, Pilot Study, of course, the Modern Vinyl podcast and we have the Vinyl Crawl. There's tons of great content over there podcast-wise, but Megan, you scheduled this, so why don't you go ahead and introduce today's guest? We have the wonderful Maria Sherman with us today, and (laughs) Maria has originated the Knuckle Tats idea on Twitter. (laughs) Of course, we're going to talk about that because that's awesome, (laughs) and is an NPR music contributor as well as a freelancer, and we are very, very excited to have her here with us. Well, thanks so much. I'm so excited. So to start out with our lovely order here, (laughs) uh, what first piqued your interest about freelancing in the music industry? I think it's an interesting question because I think for a lot of people, freelancing is just sort of out of necessity if they're getting started, if they are doing some sort of other creative endeavor on the side. Um, For me, it it was, I think I was kind of lucky because I had a position where I sort of had jobs like like in in offices because I went to NYU and uh, interned places that became jobs and found that I was sort of unhappy doing that uh, by virtue of the fact that I still wanted to work with a bunch of different editors and if you work at a given place sometimes you don't have that sort of freedom and I just wanted to work with a lot of different people of different backgrounds of different voices to I guess just become a better listener and and a better writer um of course, that has its own sort of shortcomings, usually of the financial variety uh, <laughs> and, and any sort of stability. But that kind of works for me because I don't really like boundaries and I'm not a very disciplined person. Um, my interest in writing is always sort of coexist with my interest in music. When I was in college, I did a bunch of internships at different publications and then some at record labels. I was at Beggar's Group label for a while, which was like Rough Trade, 4AD, XL, all of the biggies there. And uh, I wanted to learn more about like industry sort of specific stuff so I could become a smarter music writer. I think writing and music always kind of went hand in hand for me. I was always sort of interested in something that like writing and journalism that was creative, but also engaging with art that already existed. Um, and I quickly learned by working at labels that I did not have a sort of business mind. I was always going to be better at sort of communicating and, and telling stories outside of the records that already exist. Yeah. And as someone who majored in music industry, I totally understand what you mean by knowing more about the music business in general really does help when you are trying to write about, you know, specific artists or, you know, especially if you're writing about some of these huge artists that are just on a totally different scale than everyone else. It's like if you don't understand sort of how that scale works and sort of how these artists really make their money, it can make writing about them a little more difficult. Absolutely. And I feel like then it almost makes them alien. It like continues to perpetuate this idea, especially of like sort of pop stardom on on a sort of pedestal. I think having a sort of well-rounded understanding, as much as you can, obviously. I'm not a, like, expert in anything other than <laughs> the one very narrow field of, of the music journalism that I chose to pursue. But, uh, yeah, it, it is it is interesting. I'm, I'm happy I did it. I know, I don't think I know really 
any other music writers who have kind of done that other, they kind of go the other way, typically you start writing and then you find your way into like the sort of business industry sort of side of things. It's not, I don't think it's necessarily a journey that I would recommend, but that's what's kind of cool about working in the music industry. I think everybody has their own different origin stories. Yeah, definitely. And for me, when I was at Drexel doing my major and everything, that's sort of when I really started getting into the writing side as well. And, you know, while I do freelance work, I by no means make a living off of it. It's just something I'm sort of like, hey, let me try and pay my health insurance this month (laughs) and that sort of thing for me right now while I look for something full time. And it's definitely interesting having that perspective because sometimes I'll read a piece and I'm just like, do these people know how the entertainment industry works at all? Because it's totally different from so many other industries. Right. And and even like, I feel like now I'm just playing devil's advocate with myself. I don't think it's totally necessary to have that sort of knowledge, but it is a different approach. And I kind of like that. I don't know if you're looking to do sort of writing full time, but uh, there, there are a lot of people who kind of do it as as supplemental income. Obviously, that's not why you do it. They're much easier, less time consuming, less <laughs> emotionally draining ways to to kind of do that. Um, but it leads it lends itself to uh, a freelance industry that allows for a lot of different voices, and I think that's really cool. I do it full time because it's like my favoriteest thing in the world. But I like that other people can kind of uh, engage with it. I'm really interested in. Uh, certain arts that feel as democratic as possible. And I think writing and music kind of lends itself to that energy. If anybody wants to do this, they can. They just have to be willing to put in the work. Right. And speaking of putting in work, (laughs) what struggles have you actually faced working as a freelancer, particularly within the music industry? I think with sort of the practice of freelancing is uh, trying to not overextend yourself, but also knowing that you probably need to say yes to a lot of things. It's very rare that I'll say no to an opportunity, especially if it's a challenging one. Um, In the last couple of months, I found myself writing more about Latin music, for example. I am Puerto Rican, but it's not something because I I grew up listening to it, but then I discovered like pop punk and emo and I was like, goodbye forever Uh, and kind of totally dismiss that sort of stuff. But I'm returning to that because I do have an understanding of it and there are more opportunities for that sort of thing, which if you asked me even six months ago, would I be interested in doing more of that stuff? I would probably tell you, no, I'm terrified. Um, So I think those are more like of like personal sort of problems within it. Um, And I think a lot of it, and it's always the like ugly stuff of freelancing that I like to talk about because I don't think it's fun to discuss and I don't think a lot of people are are kind of willing to share this information, but a lot of it is wholly unglamorous. You do get to make your own hours, but that means a lot of weird hours of, I like, I'm a big fan of like waking up at 4am and writing stuff when no one is online. So I can't be distracted in that regard Um, and sort of making sure that you're organized enough that you're like producing enough, but not so much that like your brain is is, is shrinking or or you ha- you are losing ideas or something. Um, I think if you're a person who tends to work in a creative way where you have like big spurts of ideas and then like uh, you have a couple weeks where you're not feeling that creative, I'm not so sure that this is something to pursue full time. It's kind of has to be high energy all the time. Yeah, I guess that's more like business minded stuff. Uh, that's yeah. And I'm actually going to bounce um, to you talking about 
your Puerto Rican heritage, as well as starting to write more about Latin music. You've recently done an interview with Lorena Alvarez Valencia, and the end graph of that interview caught my eye. And that quote is, the male-dominated world of music reviews is actively being challenged by a Puerto Rican woman. Sherman reminds us that professional journalism shouldn't come with barriers that limit our voices. The best journalism often contains heart and passion, two things Sherman has a lot of. So how can people try to actually break down those barriers when it seems like the industry is just dominated by white dudes? I have to shout out Lorena first and foremost because she's the best, and I can't wait to see where she goes. I don't know if you're familiar with the publication, but it's Affinity Mag, which is a bunch of teens writing mostly for like teen interest stuff for other teens. But I think she's like she's so far ahead of where I was at at her age. It's it's pretty incredible. I think I saw she's seventeen. Yeah, it's it's insane. She's just like coming for my job, and I don't even really have one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a it's a bright future. Um, I think I guess like the ultimate thing is when when I started writing about music, and I kind of always knew that I wanted to do this. I didn't really it wasn't right when this sort of like identity journalism bubble kind of burst. So I wasn't really looking at bylines and seeing who was represented who was represented rather in the sort of stuff that I was reading. And then I went to college and I looked back and I was like, wow, I was only really reading one or two. Uh, female journalists, not to mention uh, people of color, because I was more focused on rock criticism. And rock criticism, I think, has always had a huge issue with uh, with only really having, like, white writers. Um, and when I sort of realized that I didn't look like the people who were doing the things that I was admiring and found other voices outside of the sort of bubble I had created for myself, I became very excited by that and just kind of continued doing what I love doing and refuse to let sort of situations that might seem uncomfortable or like if I look around and I'm the only person who appears but you can't really do that because I'm very white passing but maybe appears to not have any sort of um, like Latinx heritage or or isn't a woman or or something of that capacity to kind of use that to your advantage to realize that you are doing something that is different by simply doing it and there's real power in that Um, I very rarely get dismayed with the like this the, the fact that, like, cr- critics and, and rock critics are still tend to be primarily sort of white and male uh, and cisgendered simply because I know the times are changing. I think the most exciting voices in writing are women especially. Um, and that if we keep on trucking, then, like, they will be displaced. I feel like they're already being displaced <laughs> in, like, indie rock or whatever, or music in general. Uh, and I think the culture of criticism in writing around that, reflects that now and will continue to. So I guess the the whole concept is to uh, not be weary of what's happening around you, but be, I guess, but be aware of it and continue to continue to sort of change and, and work towards a brighter future. I feel like that was a lot of cliches, but I'm just, I'm really excited about it. Like, I'm excited that, like, that was the question you even asked me, and that's something, like, Lorena picked up on. Yeah, and I actually want to dive into your writing a little bit more because, like I mentioned before we hit record, I'm a big nerd when it comes to how people do things and like what apps people use and everything. And we don't have to go into the apps necessarily, but do you have a specific process for your writing? Do you have a specific way you come up with topics before you even start figuring out which article you want to work on for what publication? I sort of do. And I think this is probably common for 
not just writers, but anybody who makes stuff is I always have a notebook with me and I know like I can do this on my phone, but I guess I'm just like an old soul or something, but I always have a notebook where I jot down like a couple ideas of, of what would, if I've seen like a sort of trend in music and I want to explore it later, like uh, certain examples of it within certain artistry or movements or geographies. Um, if I'm doing, but I guess a lot of my process, uh, I did air quotes, but this is a podcast. So you can't see that of course is simply doing a bunch of research and creating outlines for things that might not even become full thoughts, but sort of branching out from there. Um, it's not very glamorous or complicated, but it's, it's simply just trying to find connections if they exist and if they don't, back to the drawing board. Yeah, and when you're working on these long-form pieces, do you typically outline your piece before you really get working on it just so you sort of have an idea of what sections you want to have where because I'm personally working on something right now and I haven't pitched it to any sites or anything but you know I have my own to fall back on in case it doesn't get picked up somewhere else but for me I sort of didn't really start just writing the piece from the beginning I sort of sat down I looked at what the topic was that I was going to be writing about. And from there, I was like, okay, I'm going to start with this and then I'll go here. And then I think this is how I'll wrap it up. So I didn't outline it per se, but I outlined it in my head, I guess. So do you ever do outlines for your longer pieces? Right. Um, I think what is sort of become my trick of the trade, and I'm sure other people do it as well, is if I have an idea for a piece and I want to obviously pitch it before I start writing it, I kind of use the my like pitch letter or what my pitch email I guess um, to outline the piece because if if I can sell an editor on it, sell sounds gross. <laughs> if I can convince an editor, I mean that's what it is. But I hate the idea of, of like writing to be considered this like transaction that feels really naughty to me. Um, yeah, but like the idea of I have to like kind of convince them that I'm going somewhere with this. And they are probably the hardest people I'm going to have to please. So if I if they can, like, find some actual skeletal anything out of these ideas, then that's always kind of a working outline for me. And then I branch, like, I'll, I'll often, like, pull up, if it's, a, like, a long pitch, which is usually what happens if I'm doing, like, a cover story or something of considerable length, I'll pull that up. And then I'll put up pull up my, like blank word document and I'm like well okay if I wrote like 500 to 600 words just explaining what this thing is going to be I can reread that and be like and that helps like jog my memory if there's like an interview it helps structure where my questions went and and what ideas can be connected and where um but I feel like you gotta outline in some capacity it doesn't have to be the pitch email but I don't maybe I just have a terrible memory (laughs) it goes back to being disorganized or something but yeah I definitely have to have some structure even if it's a self-created skeleton of nothing (laughs) and then become something. Right. And for what I'm working on, it's one of those things where I plan to do it, whether or not another site picks it up and pays me for it, even though I make no money on my site because it's something I want (laughs) to write about. So I'm just going to, you know, get it out there, whether or not I'm being paid for it. Obviously being paid is preferable when you're spending a lot of time on things, but it's just one of those things for me where you know, right now, if I get paid to write, that's perfectly fine by me. I'm good with that. It'll help me out, you know, and maybe eventually I'll stop living with my parents again. But (laughs) right now, it's like, you know, I'm going to write because it's something I like to do. I don't want to ever make it feel like it's 
a job. And I know when you are doing freelance pitches all the time, and sometimes it can sort of start to feel that way. So do you ever feel like with the process you have and the sites you pitch to, does it ever really start to feel like a job or is it still something you just wake up wanting to do every day? Well, it's definitely a job because it's it's sort of like a means to exist in a capitalist society. Um, but it, I, I do like the freedom that it allows, even though I'll sometimes be a little crazy and I'll like work. And it's like, I don't even want to admit how many hours a couple of days a week and then I'll have a couple of days free to travel or, or do whatever. Because often a lot of this is traveling, at least for me, because I feel like I focus on a lot of interviewing and, and profile writing, at least recently. Um Oh, but what I wanted to say is even if you're working on something that's a great idea and you know it's a great idea and you're not, you haven't like pitched it to a publication or haven't gotten the yes, definitely still write it and definitely put it out there because um, I think that's a that's a good means of just like kind of honing in on your chops and getting people to pay attention to you. Right. I wasn't part of this generation because I wasn't like a like an avid Tumblr user, but I know for a while there are like a lot of writers who are my age and a little bit older got their start working at Pitchfork, and they got their start working at Pitchfork because of the things that they were publishing, self-publishing on Tumblr, just like essays of music criticism and what have you. So there is sort of like just if the more work you do, the better you're going to get and the more people are going to take notice. And it's easy to feel burnt out or whatever. But, yeah, if you have a great idea, you got to share it with the world because somebody else might have the same idea and you got to be first and better. Right? Absolutely. And this is true. <laughs> Megan, I know you wanted to talk specifically about some NPR music stuff. So why don't we go ahead and jump into that? Yeah, I feel like today is the day of NPR stuff. I mean, I was <laughs> helping out with one of their partner stations today with the uh, fun drive stuff. Oh, cool. So it's always, you know, good thing to support local public radio. But yeah, when did you start as a contributor for NPR Music, and what do you like about being part of that world? Uh, I'm so happy about this question because I freaking love NPR so much. Everybody should work with NPR. Everyone should do something with their local station. They're just the best. Um, it happened through Twitter, which is not a very dramatic origin story, but um, I'd been in communication with one of the music editors there, Lars Gottrich, um, and I think we sort of share... A, a sort of like DIY punk sort of ethos. Um, I think we came from kind of underground local community music sort of stuff, booking shows and what have you, and then found ourselves sort of in um, major leagues corporate media world. This is how I tell the story. He might tell it differently. Uh, but I feel like there was an immediate sort of kinship. He also likes pop music and very heavy music. He's a metal guy. I'm more of a hardcore person and noise person. But we were trying, I think we've been like trying to figure out something to do together for a while. And then I got a phone call from him and he was like, do you want to interview Kim Gordon tomorrow? And I was in Puerto Rico visiting my abuelas and I was like, yeah, um, but I don't have internet here. <laughs> There's like, and I, at that point they didn't have running water. It wasn't a hurricane or anything. It was just a big storm. And I was like, I have to figure out, like, I got to stand under like a tall tree or something and try and figure out how I'm going to talk to you. Kim Gordon of Sonic Youth, who I love so much, I'm not even going to be able to hear her, but it worked out, um, and I, I did an interview with her, and that was my first piece for them, and then afterwards, uh, we just kind of kept working together, and I think what I love about them so much is they are such as, like, uh, this, like, institution of, of just, like, diverse and interesting music, and they really, everyone who works there 
has such an interest in different kinds of music and, and different stories um, and how we can connect to them. So I get, I just really love that I get to continue working with Lars and, and he's really supportive of like younger acts, especially that I uh, want to vouch for. And I think it's just this wonderful community, especially for everybody who writes there. I can't really speak to all of the stations everywhere, but I'm sure they're great. They're great here. They're I'm in Philly. They're great in New York. That it becomes this, this community where you, ha- you are given this platform and, and you can use it to really share like music that I think would otherwise not be given the same sort of light. Maybe on like stereograms and, and such of the worlds. But uh, it's cool that NPR can do huge things with huge acts and then also cares about, I don't know, a sports seven inch or something. <laughs> I just love what they have been doing lately. And I am hoping one day to actually end up at NPR Music. Like, that is my dream job. I think it's everyone's dream job. <laughs> <laughs> when you get it in, you can hire me. It's the, Yeah, they're, they're the best. I think I would say of, like, the music editorial teams, I'm not going to, like, obviously rank them because I love everywhere I work for and I love all of my editors. They make me not sound dumb. Uh, but I think, like, NPR and Bandcamp especially, I think their teams are just, like, so unique and so forward-thinking, and all of them seem to be on the same page but they're all so different. It's I've never like never seen a work environment like that. It's crazy. It's so cool. And I'm just going to continue on this NPR train. Yeah, go for it. You were just up in DC for Paramore's <laughs> Tiny Desk concert, which I'm kind of sad I missed out on cuz I totally would have driven up to DC <laughs> to see that. But why do you love bragging about your awesome Paramore <laughs> essay? Like, we're going to give you some shameless self-promotion here. But when Haley was talking at this tiny desk, she was saying that one of her favorite essays about After Laughter was your piece. Yeah, which is so cool. She's so cool. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm a total fan of shameless self-promotion. I think you should be proud of the work you do or... Why are you doing it? I guess not to brag about it, but you know, whatever. You should feel good about. You should feel good about what you're like contributing to greater culture. Blah blah blah. Yeah. So I went to the Paramore Tiny Desk because um, it'd been in talks behind the scenes, I guess, at NPR for a while. And they said if it ever happens, I'd have to go, and they were right. <laughs> and I did go down, and it was great. I don't think it is live yet, so I'm not going to give any specific details. But they were great. They played all new stuff. And I think I'm proud of bragging about that essay is because um, it's it's my favorite Paramore release. I think they have just become a completely different band, and they've grown from the sort of pop-punk, emo, misogynistic warp Tour world that I also sort of grew up in. Uh, obviously, them more so because they were a band, and they were actually contributing to that sort of stuff. I just volunteered on, like, for, like, PETA on warp Tour or something when I was 14. Um but, but kind of, I, I think for some reason, like, Haley Williams has become the sort of, like, standard for, like, progress and growth within that sort of community for a lot of people. And I think this record is her kind of coming to terms with herself. Um, I don't want to say that she's, like, going through anything, but I think she's growing in, in a really beautiful and public and, and sort of heartbreaking way. I think that record is is really sad. And uh, I didn't get into much of, much of the melancholy in that essay. I kind of tiptoed around it because I think what's most interesting is this it's a sonic departure and it's a sort of thematic departure. I think it's a really brave record and it's fun when you got to talk about things that um, are not only great and, and different sort of musically, but also kind of symbolize some sort of shift in a person in, in a band and, and in the culture of people who, 
who like Paramore. I think they're also a band that um, you're not really a casual Paramore fan. I think you're kind of in it if you're in it even a little bit. I think it's they sometimes have this like sort of um, identity characteristic about them where, where people sort of like Paramore fan is an identity trait or something. And it was just exciting to see that I was a little bit on the money with it because you never know. I, I tend to like to write things that the musicians would appreciate because it's their music that I'm dissecting and like I'm a third party. So I would hope that I'm doing it justice, I guess. And you did like after laughter is one of my favorite records from this year. I believe Deanna's in the same camp. Yep. (laughs) Like I I'm just on the train that more people need to listen to that because it's so good. It's really great. Yeah. Like it's been a great summer album. So now that fall started, yeah. I'm interested to play it just to lift the uh, autumnal blues that I tend to go through. See, it's like in the 90s here this week, so it's still summer in California, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> that it's 90. It was 90 today here in Philadelphia. It's a sick joke. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But yeah, I think I think that I think that record will kind of work outside of seasons. It's it's made me kind of more interested in like. I guess, like, the, all of the 80s music that they say that they're ripping off of, but I don't really think that they are. Um, it, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think whenever I listen to it, I learn something more, even if it's just from Haley's vocal performance, because, I don't know, there's something just so, like, trustworthy about her voice. It brings me comfort in a weird way. Which is totally fine, as I've got Rose-Colored Boy going through my head right now. So that's fine. <laughs> I just want to sit here and dance, but... The 20 ounces of iced coffee I had earlier is finally hitting me, so I'm officially wired. (laughs) But while we're on this track of talking about awesome records by awesome ladies, the NPR 150 Best Albums by Women list came out earlier this year. And we actually discussed that list in our last episode of Misaligned. Oh, awesome. And just everything's been a great tie-in so far with this season. But... You actually contributed quite a few albums to that list. And how did you manage to decide what to write about? Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, too. That's probably one of, like, the most exciting projects I've ever been a part of. It took months. Um, I I got to see my byline alongside people who have been heroes of mine for a bajillion years. It's, it's just really incredible experience to work with all of these wonderful and completely brilliant women. I think every, and this is great because I've never seen this happen to any sort of great list I've contributed to, but I guess I've also never contributed to a great list where everybody else was also a woman, uh, where there was no sort of like weird competitive spirit. Everybody was just saying, here are the things that we need to uh, discuss. Nobody was like sort of fighting each other for the Beyonce record or whatever. And when, when I sort of approached it, we all kind of gave our votes on stuff and then they narrowed it down from there, as is the uniform approach to most lists. And I kind of focused in on newer releases because I knew as one of the younger voices at NPR that I wanted to sort of make sure that the 90s and the aughts were well represented for the great talents that existed in my actual lifetime. (laughs) Um, And then kind of went from there. Yeah, I was like very much like, if we don't put Taylor Swift on this thing, and I'm not a Swifty by any means, but I was like, come on, guys. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I I think like, and and I think I wasn't alone in that approach where everybody was just like, I want to make sure this isn't all like American music or Western European music. Um, I want to make sure that the voices here kind of range from performance singers like the Beyonce's of the world and and like songwriters 
even songwriters who didn't like write their own music, but are songwriters, stuff of that. It was, it was kind of like a loose, just, uh, if, if you are a femme identifying person, you can be included in this great thing. And at the heart was just this reworking of Canon. Cause I think the best records of all time are almost always exclusively, uh, like dude centric records, which is weird because I don't personally have any affinity for like classic rock. And I just think we should get rid of the whole thing, but I guess that's a very radical, um, ideology, and and kind of when we were, like, going through it, and um, there was this uh, panel that we did, too, at Lincoln Center earlier this summer that was great, kind of discussing our picks and, and kind of what I'm talking about now. And uh, I had a realization while I was, like, on this panel with all these genius women, and it was kind of that a lot of canon or whatever we consider the best of any sort of creative field, especially art, becomes this weird pretentious void where that doesn't really leave a lot of room for joy. Like, I don't know why a sad record would be better than, than one that is just like a happy pop thing that has a similar sort of resonance in, in a very different way. Um, now, and I kind of came to that realization when I was talking about the Spice Girls and I read this study that the UK, that's uh, some UK college and, and forgive me for misremembering the, uh, which school it was, but they kind of did this blind study uh, and they played the song Wannabe and most people could identify it within 43 seconds, making it technically the most popular song ever recorded because no song could be that easily recognized in just like a pool of other pop songs. Granted, it was in the UK, but they did some in the US. Um, and it's just interesting to me that it's like, okay, if it's this prevalent thing and it's this important thing and it's this happy thing, I mean, I feel like I learned feminism from Spice Girls. Why aren't they like part of this greater conversation? And they're, and, and they're just one of 150 examples. And um, the project is going on. It's called Turning the Tables. And now we're doing essays based on women who came before the cutoff time, which was 1964, and other women who have kind of gone bubbled under the surface and deserve sort of recognition for all of their musical triumph. So it's, it's still going on. It's this ongoing conversation and it's just the freaking best. I'm so happy you guys talked about it. And actually speaking of that, turning the tables thing, I think when we were doing our podcast about that list, we were talking about why Cher wasn't on it. I want to say that Cher article that came out after the list is in that series. That, yeah, that, that would make sense. Yep, I, I haven't I seen it. Cause there's, it <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because uh, I think, yeah, that's the problem with any sort of, like, canonical list is there's the issue of, but what about this person? And I think we're, we're the fact that this has become, this is all spearheaded by Ann Powers, by the way, who is just the friggin' bee's knees. Um, it, it's just kind of like the idea that this is an ongoing conversation, and anybody who seems like they've been unfairly cast aside off of the list, they'll get their time to shine, too. And I, I just, I think that's how music works. It's this, like, ongoing artistic outpouring and we can learn more if we talk about it more if we write about it more and that's kind of the spirit of that i feel like calling it a list doesn't do it justice but that's what it is because lists can be so subjective and everyone has their own opinion and of course whenever lists appear everyone will put their two cents in and be like well why wasn't this included or why wasn't it or why was this album included right which deanne and i had good banter about um in that last podcast where we're giving our reflections on the list. Yeah, I, and I love that. And I love that people are like, okay, well, here's uh, like 150 more. I know Kim Kelly, who is a metal critic at Noisy, just tweeted a list of 150 metal albums. Because I, I think there isn't any metal on that list, which is the main issue there. I'm trying to correct that by writing other sort of 
essay stuff surrounded by metal and, and, and noise and other sort of industrial music. Um, I don't know if, if this is something you've discussed or seen, but like the New York Times just did that big feature on that was called like Rock's Not Dead. It's made by women and they were spotlighting some underground artists with uh, with, ban- I guess, bands that are fronted by women. And I wrote a response and I was like, OK, well, here's like a bajillion more that you could have been concluded included rather. So I think like that's kind of the benefit of, of list of this kind is if we're going to try and fight back against um, limited representation and kind of occupying these spaces that were once so white, straight, male, cisgendered, uh, then we have to continue talking about them because it's it's not going to change until it becomes normalcy. And speaking of what you wrote in response to that article, I believe when we chatted with Jess Skolnick, they mentioned that as well. They wanted to make sure that people knew about this list since when we did our interview with them, it had just come out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And Jess is the smartest. They know way more about this than I do. Um, I just like, in my response, I just try to make sure that uh, like there were trans women represented because I, I don't think there were any in the New York Times list, which is really unfortunate and crazy to me. Um, and I know when Jess does anything, that's even, I feel like they don't do lists ever but <laughs> when they do anything of this kind it's always it's always the most inclusive thing in the world and i just aspire to do what they do yeah so i think it's great and as you can see our season has actually come full circle because everything we've talked about has been mentioned in some capacity with this season i mean we've got kim gordon's book we've got the great chat with jess we've got this NPR discussion. This is what happens when you actually plan episodes ahead of time. <laughs> Maria's just tying <laughs> it all together for us. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> You're welcome. No, I think I think that's actually like, and and it sounds like you did incredible planning, but I also think that it's it kind of um, draws a greater point of how sort of these conversations of of future of music and industry and writing and all that jazz is this sort of interdisciplinary intersectional conversation where all these things do tie well together because they affect all of us and. I think you've probably touched on a lot of things that will prove to be even truer in the coming months and years and and all that stuff. Especially in today's day and age, like we are seeing a rise in more people talking about the blatant sexism in the industry. We've got female musicians breaking barriers and still the push to say, well, why do we say female bands or female fronted? Why can't we just say band like these discussions are becoming more and more prevalent and that rocks yeah and and i i think it's getting better it's getting better every day and there's still a lot of work to be done i found myself and i know this is true for a lot of like um female or uh, non-binary writers that sometimes uh there's a lot of frustration especially in like just sort of office workplace with uh trying to be inclusive to all identities but getting kind of pushed back from maybe older guard or more like conservative-minded writers and I think a lot of it is just continuing to educate and be open to these sort of conversations because they're crucial for any sort of change. I've definitely been in positions where I felt like I was the PC police, and that can be really exhausting, but it's sort of necessary um, not to be like a preacher, but to sort of make sure uh, that I'm being as inclusive as I can be and to know that nobody's totally correct and nobody's going to be doing something that is wholly progressive I guess there's always more learning to be done and uh, more work to be done 
This is true. And to wrap up our whole interview today, we've got the great curveball discussion question, which I brought up at the beginning (laughs) of our chat with your uh, knuckle tat ideas. (laughs) I mean, we really can't have a chat without you without hearing some of the best ideas that either you've come up with or ideas that you've seen bounced around on Twitter. Oh my gosh. I think the knuckle tattoo thing is so weird because I was, I like one day just thought, okay, what's the, like the most embarrassing tattoo in the world? I don't think it's tramp stamps. I think it's knuckle (laughs) tattoos. Even though I, I apologize to all my friends who have uh, knuckle tattoos or tramp stamps. I guess I was unkind. Um, but I think they're just really funny. And I think it's really funny to take like mundane words like baby corn and make them knuckle tattoo ideas. Actually, that isn't one. Maybe I'll go tweet that now. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I feel like I should have a more interesting answer. Um, but it's funny because even though something as simple as knuckle tattoo ideas, it's so silly. I've definitely had those jokes, the the good popular ones, taken by white straight men and <laughs> kind of tried to be passed off as their own, which I know happens to a lot of female comedians. But I'm not a comedian, so it's just kind of funny that it's like, wow, literally every industry, Twitter.com, <laughs> like there are people trying to take credit for. Some like knuckle tattoo idea, fake news or something. It's 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 really silly, um, but they're fun, and I'm gonna do them forever. <laughs> I'm actually glad Megan brought this up because I was going through a drawer of stickers that I have in this little plastic container, and there is literally a sticker in there that is two fists with knuckle tattoos that say nerd life on them and I think I got them as like a sample from sticker mule or something when I was like trying to figure out where I wanted to get my stickers done and I was like I have this and this is very strange but it's also great at the same time and that just sort of just perfectly ties into this conversation today by chance (laughs) no that's great it's also kind of changed the way I look at the world because I've always like when, especially when I write, this is like a weird, I feel like maybe a, like a, a little bit of an OCD sort of tendency. I'm very particular about the cadence of sentences and phrases. And often I like when things are sort of like rhythmic in a way where they're also sort of um, symmetrical. And with like knuckle tattoos, it has to be four letter words. And I prefer when it's like two separate words. So I'll like look out into the world and like letters will shift. It's very, I don't know, I guess it's a beautiful mind. Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it truly, it's like changed my the way I like see science and day-to-day life, which is probably not the best thing, but it's kind of funny. Absolutely. Well, Megan, do you have anything else for Maria or does that wrap up our conversation today? I don't. I think that wraps it all up. Maria, I would like to thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast today. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. I hope uh, some of this makes sense. And you worked through all the technical issues with us because, as I told you earlier, it would not be an episode of Misaligned without some sort of technical difficulty happening. I pride myself on usually being prepared in that department because I work from home. So it's usually like, all right, I got some backup ideas. But today, the machines have won. Yeah, Skype is something that I like to call a necessary evil when podcasting. So, you know, it's so finicky. Skype issues are a common thing. I have done everything I can on my end to minimize them, but they still happen. So, you know, don't feel bad at all. It is totally fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. And to our listeners, as always, thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.